Alright, well good morning again for about the fourth time, but I my chance to say good morning to you. I want to tell you that I feel like a blessed man. I am thankful. I'm encouraged. Thank you for standing when they ask you to stand in support. That was a close one for a while. It looked iffy. It could go either way. I will, to the best of my ability, hold up to honoring what was asked of me today. And so that we can work together. I want to again say thank you to, to all of you for the uh, encouragement. Marianne and I thank, thank you for the, the flowers and the, the food and the gifts and the visits and the phone calls. Thank you. you you've made us feel at home. Um, and I want to thank you for the email that I received this week. I had just, they had just given me the Heartland email address, and so I put it together. Boom, I get an email. Dear Brother Sitters, I did not agree with anything you said last Sunday. You can't change my mind. I hope this encourages you. Have a great day, Brother Anonymous. But I looked at the, 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 the um, address from where it came, and I saw my son-in-law's name, Tyler Holloway. <laughs> So I said, Dear Brother Anonymous, thank you for your encouraging note. I said, as long as you put a big check in the collection plate, it really doesn't matter to me. (laughs) Have a great day. So, if you have your Bibles, by the way, turn over to John chapter 9. This is the sermon that I, the the very first sermon I ever do at any congregation, John chapter 9, because it is my favorite and uh, you'll have to thumb through. There's, there's too much, okay? There's too much. I need a little grace this morning because we might run a little over, but i got two things working in my favor. Lunch is already provided and it's hot and the Chiefs don't play till 3 o'clock. So you've got no reason. No reason, okay? Let me ask you this, though. I, I need to know this. Um, because in, 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 the, um, in, in John chapter 9, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of motion going on and a lot of chaos going on. And um, a lot of people in this particular chapter that are going to say, I know, I know, we know, we know. But I need for your help, I need to find out the people that really do know certain things about certain subjects, okay? Just, just for a moment. Who in here, and by the way, this isn't, I'm not asking you if you know the most or the best or the, in, in the world, just this is your category and you know so. Who in here would say, you know what, I know about smoking meats. I'm, I'm the one to come talk to. Alright, Ted, Marianne, make a, start taking notes here. What about cooking or baking? You're, you're the one. Okay, good. We got several in here. My wife also could be added to that category. Um, who in here would say, you know what, I know golf. I, I know about golf. I'd love to read about golf. I love to play golf. I love to watch golf on TV. Hold your hands up high because this is a real important category to me right here. This is a, that's a very important one. How about, um, you're the one that knows hummingbirds. Anybody? Okay. And so they do come around here, right? Because I just started, they, they fascinate me. They, they fascinate me. 
And so I started with a little feeder back in Louisiana, and I started attracting some, then we moved. So anyway, so there's my, there's my hummingbird person. Um, who in here would say, I know Kansas City. I know roads. I know suburbs. I know if I tell you something about, if I say this about Kansas City, you'd say, okay, it's right over here. All right, so we got several of you. Wonderful. See, now that is something that you know. And because of your um, experience. Um, but you ever run across the person who loves to tell you everything they know? Yeah. We call them the know-it-all. Right? And they can't wait for you to take a breath so that they can jump in and start telling you what they know about that subject, whether or not they know about it. Right? I mean, you could be talking about South African hydraulic calibrators that compress torque capacity to the square of the largest foot-pound energy ever invented. And the know-it-all will say, yeah, you know what I know about that. I've got a cat that sits in the bookshelf and looks out the window as traffic goes by. That was a joke. Some of them don't go very well. Right? But they just can't wait to jump in and tell you what they know. And the question in this chapter is, how do we know? How do you know what you know? How do you know what it means to follow God? What, what does it mean? How do you know what it means to love Jesus? And so that's the story in John chapter 9. Now, it's basically, it, it, it's basically this. Um, Jesus heals a man that's born blind. And then all of the chaos ensues with all of the different groups. Now, let me tell you what I want today. I'm asking you to find your place in the story. Some group in this story you will identify with. And here's what, let me me give this disclaimer. For some of you, you will identify with the group because what I'm about to say about it might offend you. That's how you know you identify with them. Now, here's the other thing I want to say. We all are committed to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We're here today to to worship and to, to honor God. And we're all throughout the week trying to figure out exactly how we are to practice our faith. And there are two things that typically are the, um, the, the main reasons or, or, or motivators for the way that we live our life, our, our, our Christian faith. Number one is our knowledge. We all have some knowledge of, of the text. We've all read. We've all, we've all heard. We've heard sermons. Some of you have been coming to church a long, long time. You have Bible classes, youth, youth retreats. Um, you read Scripture, you read books, you listen to sermons on television, you're on the Internet, and so um, we can only practice to the level of the knowledge that we do have. But here's the other thing. It is also our experience. It is our experience that, um, that we have accumulated with the faith that allows it to be familiar to us. Back in East Texas, there was, um, there was a group that would always go 
across the um, across the ocean on a, on a on a medical missionary trip, and they would um, several months before they went over, they would start getting in shape, and they would start running, and they would start doing aerobics. Why y'all doing that for? That because when we go to worship with the brothers and sisters over there, as soon as they start singing. They're jumping up and down, and they are, it is spiritual aerobics in their worship. Why? That's, that's their experience. That's what their culture is. And they told me, he said, you better get in shape. Because if you're not in shape, you'll be out of breath before the preacher gets up to preach. Right? Well, that's not our experience necessarily. So when we hear of another group that loves to jump up and down while they worship God, we say, well, it's kind of odd because that's not my experience. So it is our knowledge and our experience that kind of lays the foundation of who we are and how we practice the faith. Now, by the way, our experience in life can really change our perspective. A friend of mine 20 years ago handed me this. This is a paper from his nephew. Uh, It was basically an elementary school sheet that you write out. And it says, tell me about yourself. Okay? And so my name is, and he wrote Jared. Now, you tell me if you can figure out his experience or not. I'll, I'll leave it up to you. My favorite color. Oh, they're on my head. Thank you. No, no, no. Those are the wrong ones. <laughs> get my age, you've got to have more than one pair. Can I get an amen? My favorite color is blue. My favorite singer or group is Clint Black. My idea of a good time is, and he wrote, playing baseball. My parents get upset when I run the lawnmower over a brick. I would be happier if I hadn't have run the lawnmower over the brick. If I could do one thing in life, I would... Not run lawnmowers over bricks. You kind of figuring this out so far. And I mean, it goes on all the way down uh, throughout this. <laughs> Here, here's some of my favorite. This year, I would like to learn how to identify bricks so I don't run over them. Um, in, in life, I generally find that I don't trust bricks. And so that particular event, that particular experience impacted him. It's the same way with us. So, again, here's the story. Jesus is walking along with his disciples in John chapter 9. They come across a man who was born blind. Now, interestingly, um, they, um, the disciples ask this question. Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he was blind? Jesus replies, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I'm, I am the light, and while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed 
and he came home seeing. What an incredible story. What an incredible event. One that you would think that everybody would just be um, excited about. This guy was blind, blind from birth. Now he sees. But there are going to be groups that come along. Four groups in Jesus. So the disciples say this. Hey, Jesus. See that blind man? Hey, I wonder who's sinned. Jesus, whose fault is it that this guy's blind? Because we know it's somebody's fault, right? By the way, do you realize that when they say that, all they're doing, again, is to some degree parroting the law. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse uh, around 19. That I will punish the sins of the people to the second, the third, the fourth generation. And it was a... Jewish mentality that if something was wrong in your family, if there was some kind of affliction on you, it was because of the sin of somebody. And our job was to find out who sinned. Whose fault is this? Jesus, we need to get to the bottom line of this. Who can we blame for this situation? I don't know if they were trying to impress Jesus. I don't know if they were trying to make themselves look good. But, but man, they were, they, were, they were quoting Scripture to Jesus. By the way, notice Jesus will have nothing to do with this. He, and, and we're not going to get into the theology of what Jesus said today, but He basically said, forget that, I'm going to go heal Him. And He does. Notice also that after Jesus heals Him, Jesus disappears and is gone from the scene. They can't find Him. And they're going to be looking for Him to find out who He is, how did He do this, why did He do this, what's your answer to the questions that we have. But the disciples, they are more concerned with religious discussion and blame than they are about the man. Now, I've been a preacher's kid um, all my life. Um, I've, been, I've been in ministry for nearly 30 years now. And I want to tell you, that I have to be careful in this category myself. You see, there are some folks in the church that when they see somebody that is in need, they want to say, you know what, we need to call the elders together and find out why this is going on. I want to know what that person's doing. What's going on? Who's to blame here? What I've found out in life is these people also tend to like to quote Scripture at you. The Bible says, right? The, the, the Bible says, uh, and I wrote some of these down. <clears throat> the Bible says, work not for food that spoils. Okay, that's, that's, that sounds right. I'm, I'm not sure what that means. but that The Bible says that he that walketh in the dark stumbleth over the stone. Oh, you got a problem? Well, the Bible says, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Okay. uh, Thanks a lot. I appreciate you quoting Scripture at me. I appreciate you coming down on me when things are really tough in my life. And thank you very much for judging me and just throwing me under the bus at this time because what I really need is some help and some hope and some healing. And you want to quote Scripture to me. See, because you're really not interested in me. 
You're interested in having religious discussion about me and finding out who's to blame. See, that's what they were concerned with. They were concerned with the doctrine. They literally walked past this man and put doctrine above the person. Now, let me say this. Doctrine is critically important if and only if the heart is right. If and only if the heart is right. So, here comes the next group. His neighbor show up. He has gone home. And let me tell you what the dialogue basically is here. Hey, look, look at this guy coming down the street. It, isn't that our neighbor? Isn't that, is that, the, isn't that the blind guy? That's the blind guy, isn't it? They, no, I don't know. I don't think so. Kind of looks like him, but, I, but I'm not sure. So, yeah, that's, that's him. That's the blind man. What's fascinating to me in this story is... They are his neighbors. Neighbors are typically defined by living in close proximity to you, and you kind of get to know one another. They didn't. See, they continued to call him the blind man. They didn't even call him by his name. They were more interested in labels than they were in this person. This one's... Hang on to your chair. This one's tough. Here's what I've discovered in life. If I can put a label on you, I don't have to deal with the person that was created in the image of God who has gifts and abilities and talents. All I have to do then is deal with the label that I put on you and therefore it justifies my words and my actions against you. You know, we've got to be careful we don't go around labeling people. Well, that's That's liberal. Oh, you know, that, that's the blind man. That's the blind. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, that, that's, the, that's the guy that lives on the other side of the track. You know what I'm saying? That's on the other side of the track. But what does that say? What does that mean? What it literally means is, well, you know, on the other side over there, it means I don't have to love it. I don't have to care for it. It's just a label to me. And so they were discussing all of this. They weren't interested in the man. The, the disciples over there having religious discussion. They're talking about forming a committee to discuss this a little bit further. The, na- the neighbors over here going, is that him or not? I don't know. Is it? I, 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 you got this going on, just circus. Um, one of the things that labeling another person will do to you is cause you to make great mistakes because you make assumptions about people. Anybody ever done that? And I messed that up. It's like the um, it's like the soldier years ago. Soldier and his commanding officer they get on a train and back in the old days and they're riding a train when when, the, when you know the seats faced each other. They're sitting there riding along and sure enough, who comes and sits down in front of them is this beautiful young lady and her grandmother. And so as the train is moving along, again, they're facing each other. They strike up a conversation. It's very easy to recognize that there's an attraction between the soldier and this young lady. And so a few minutes later, the the train goes into a tunnel, pitch black. And you hear two sounds once it goes pitch black. You hear the smack of a kiss and the whack of a slap across the face. And the grandmother thinks, 
How dare he kiss my granddaughter? I'm sure glad she slapped him across the face. The commanding officer is thinking, I don't blame him for kissing her, but I wish he hadn't missed and slapped me across the face. The girl's thinking, well, I don't mind him kissing me, but I wish my grandmother hadn't slapped him. So when they come out of the darkness, out of the tunnel into the light, there's the soldier with the biggest grin on his face because he had taken advantage of the opportunity to kiss a pretty girl and slap his commanding officer, and he got away with both of them. Be careful that you don't make assumptions because it can get you in trouble. The third group then that comes along um, are the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are upset because when they hear about this healing, they have one major problem with this. And it is the fact that this healing took place on the Sabbath. So they are the investigators, they are the private eyes, they are the ones that say, all right, now we need to find out exactly what's going on. We need to find out who did this, why they did this, how they think they could do this. And so who? And so they begin to interrogate and they ask all these questions. They're asking questions of the blind man. Who healed you? How could he do this? When did he do this? Now tell me again. Now again, here's their problem. They cannot believe that Jesus is from God because He healed on the Sabbath, which was a violation of what we refer to. And I'm not going to get into detail about this today, but it is a violation of their oral tradition. Oral tradition is the Jewish commentary on the Mosaic Law. So when the Bible says um, that the Sabbath is uh, not to work on the Sabbath, they define exactly what work is. By the way, do you know what their issue with Jesus was on healing this man on the Sabbath? Is that he made mud or clay with his spittle. That the fact that he was working the mud or the clay was his violation. Can't do that. So he broke their oral tradition. And here's the challenge with this. Because they could not overcome their own knowledge and experience, they missed a miracle of God. They literally couldn't see it, and it gets worse than that. They then ascribe the miracle to the evil one and say to this young man, you were steeped in birth from the time you were born. How dare you come in here and lecture us? Tradition. Tradition can bind. Tradition can keep us from the process of growing and becoming. I've seen this. I've been guilty of this. You see, the ones that get hung up and bound within tradition, what happens is to them typically is they want to bind you with their tradition also. It's not so much that they can't do it or they can't participate in it. But they also don't want you and I to participate in it. And so there is this binding effect. Tradition. You do realize, by the way, when you hear this and your first thought is, well, yeah, I don't like those people that tradition. You do realize 
that a hundred years ago, all of us would probably have been kicked out of the churches of Christ. Just because of what we're doing here. We've got a kitchen down there. We've got all kinds of things that were deemed untraditional back then. That we don't necessarily think are any big deal. their tradition. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into to a lot of details about um, stories and experiences that I've had that I watched my dad go through as a minister with churches that were basically because of the tradition that we had that kind of kept him in trouble as a minister of the gospel. So their concern was they were upset regarding the tradition. Um, Here's one thing that I would say about those that are bound by tradition. Not only do they tend to want to bind that on other people, but they're always the one who are ones who are looking for control within the church. They don't necessarily want resolution. They want control. So the, the Pharisees here were willing to disregard the entire healing of this blind man because it violated their tradition. Oh, thankfully his parents, his parents show up. And so when his parents show up, they ask him, say, now is this your son? How was he healed? All this. And, and now here's what they do. Here's what they say. Yes, he is our son. We know that he was blind from birth. But how he is healed today, who did it? How they did it? Why they did it? We don't know. You ask him, he is of age. And the text tells us why his parents said that. John says, The Jews has already decided that anyone who acknowledges or confesses Jesus will be put out of the synagogue. Now again, the synagogue is more than just a place to go to church. Synagogue for the Jew was their life. It was their religious life. It was their political life. It was their social life. It was their family. And so if you got kicked out of the synagogue, it meant that you just basically lost your life uh, as you know it. And so his parents, when they understand that part, back up and say, okay, uh, you ask him. I'm not willing to lose my social standing. I'm not willing to lose my, uh, my, my, my personal standing in, in, in relationship to the, to the culture around me. I, you, you just ask him. And we're shocked that his parents wouldn't even stand up for him. The correlation to this particular category is that there are just some people in the church that come around that just aren't to the point yet where they're totally committed. Say, so, you know what? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go to church. I'll, I'll, I'll be there. I'll sing. But you know what? I'm, that's, that's about as far. That's about as far as I'm going to get involved with it. You see, because there are some people that, that come to church to worship every week that bring a lot of pain. And they bring a lot of injury and they bring a lot of fear. The people that I've known over the years that are kind of reluctant to just jump in and to be part of the body of Christ are people who might have something to lose socially if other people found out. There are people who have been mistreated by other Christians. They're just kind of skeptical about it. I don't know if this is really what 
I'm, what I'm called to do. I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. There are some who are just afraid of being vulnerable. You see, there's some vulnerability when you get close to each other, when you love each other, when you care for each other. I'm just not to that point. And I want to encourage those of you who fit into that category. I want to encourage you because I know exactly what that feels like. I've wrestled with that in my own life for a long time. What if they discover who I really am? Will they love me? Will they really care for me? What if they discover that I have weaknesses? What if they discover that that I don't know everything? Would they love me? And I'm telling you, I wrestled with it for a long time. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage us as the family of God that over the next several weeks and months and years, that we become the living body of Christ to the world around us. But listen, it starts right here with us, with each other. To love and to care for one another. To be willing to sacrifice personal and social things that we've held on to so that we can be the body of Christ. Because every one of us are created in the image of God. We are, as believers in Jesus Christ, children of God who have gifts and abilities and talents. And we're loved. And you are loved. And you have something to offer this church, the body of Christ. And listen to me carefully. We need you. We need you. There is no... no, Let me say it this way. To the degree that we learn how to love and care for each other and serve one another is to the degree that we continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of God. Now think that through with me. See, we don't get God without each other. We go together. Ever thought about why God has us come do this every Sunday when we could just stay home? There's something about worshiping together and living together in the community of faith that helps us understand God to a greater degree. So we're in this thing together. Now, lastly, and and, and I'll stop. Jesus, there are two words here. Verse 35, I believe. 35 and 36. Here's what it says. Jesus heard about the man and what they had done to him. Jesus heard, and when he found him, Jesus heard what they were doing, and Jesus said, i got to go find him. i got to go find him. The Son of God goes looking for the man that he had healed to do the follow-up. There was only one thing that was important to Jesus in this whole story, and it was the man. The relationship. The person, the human being, he was not interested in religious discussion. He was not interested in labeling. He was not interested in oral tradition. He was not interested in his social standing. There's only one thing that gets the attention and the heart of Jesus Christ, and that is people. People. And we want to be like Jesus. 
So Jesus has this conversation with the man in the last few verses of the text. Verse 37, Jesus said, you have seen him. Oh, he said, tell me that I may believe who the Son of Man is. You've seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And the Pharisees got upset about it and they asked the question, so what are you saying? We're blind too? Is that what you're saying? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. The question in this whole chapter is, who's really blind? And the answer is, the ones who are blind, even though they love God, are the ones that go around saying, well, I know. Let me tell you what, I know. We know this stuff. I'm telling you, we've been doing it like this a long time, and we don't change these things, and we know, and the Bible says, and you know what, we need to have a religious discussion about whose fault this is. Jesus said, if you don't ever get to the point where you can humble yourself and love other people and minister to other people, you're going to live this life blind even though you claim to follow Jesus. Those are not easy words. But it's the truth. And our first challenge in following Jesus, especially if we've been following Jesus for some time, if we've been Christian for a period of time, is, boy, it is time for me to humble myself because I don't know it all. And I need to grow. And I need to learn. But I need to love. And I want the love of Jesus. It's fascinating that we can say, Jesus, thank You that You found me. Well, I'm glad You came and I'm glad You heard about me, Jesus, and You came and found me and You healed me and You forgave me. Thank You. But Jesus, don't ask me to do that for others. Let me tell you what I think the necessary attitude is leaving this place today. Because there is a part of me, by the way, that hopes I kind of agitated some of you a little bit and encouraged some of you. We've got to see ourselves. But here's the attitude. And it comes from a story from a mentor of mine, Dr. Charles Seibert. I don't know if any of you. The man impacted thousands of lives, a professor at Abilene Christian, legally blind, macro degeneration, I think is what it was. And so when he taught class, he would have about three pair of glasses on because he, couldn't, he literally could not see. Not only did he have that, but about ten years ago, found out he has cancer. And was taking it down. And he passed away five, six years ago. And so now a lot of us who, who sat at his feet no longer had the great modern day prophet to call to let him tell you the truth and to love on you. And his son, when he passed away, went into his home at his, at his desk. And here's a man who touched thousands of lives, but he went through life, he couldn't see, and then he discovered he had cancer. 
And his son, he said, and, and, he, and his son told this in the eulogy. His son said, I am, I am not happy at this time in my life. With, I'm not, I wasn't happy. I sat down at his desk just to, just to maybe feel the presence of my dad. And he said, on the desk was a little Bible with a card sitting out of it, sticking out of it. He said he kind of thumbed through it, and it was an invitation. His dad had been invited to speak to some ladies' auxiliary group or something in Abilene. And in his poor health, he struggled to get over there to speak to them. And his son said, it was the title of his message that just pierced me. Because his dad wrote at the top, the title of the message was, God, why have you been so good to me? Psalm 116. He said, it was my dad's last sermon to me because my dad spoke to me at that desk and helped me to remember what's most important. God, why have you been so good to me? That's where we begin. Because when I remember what God's done for me, it allows me to love and care for you. When I forget that, all this other junk starts to happen. Thank you, God, that you have been so good to us. Amen.